My wife Heather and I lived for many years in Cairo, in Egypt. One of our favorite spots in Egypt was a desert retreat center in the Nile Delta. And near that center was the ancient Coptic Orthodox monastery of St. Macarios. Now the abbot of the monastery, Abuna or Father Macarios, was known, if you had the right introduction, to give audiences to visitors. And during his audiences, he would allow a visitor to ask him three questions, to which he would respond. Now, ideally those questions were about theological matters. I'm not sure if you'd asked him whether the dollar would appreciate against the euro, he would have been particularly informative. But one day, Heather and I had the appropriate introduction, and so we had an audience with him. Now, Father Macarius was a fascinating figure, older, probably in his 70s, with a long white beard and a black robe and a little black beanie hat. And to add to the charm of all this, by tradition, two of his answers were always true and one was a lie. And the, the listener's spiritual work was to discern the difference. So our three questions were these. First, does God judge us? Second, does God truly know us? And third, what is one key tip for reading and interpreting the Bible? So his answers were, first, God does not judge, and nor should we. Second, each one of us is seen and known and loved. And third, a text without a context is a con. So which of those do you think is a lie and which are true? I'd like you to think about this for a minute. And if you think you instantly know, are you sure? Maybe pause and think some more. Indeed, I, I want us all now to take, I don't know, half a minute just to reflect on these three questions. Which of these three statements is true and which one is a lie? So God does not judge and nor should we. Each one of us is seen and known and loved. And a text without a context is a con. So, let us see together which were true and which was not from our biblical text, which we can read together. I do encourage you all to read aloud with me the text. As Spurgeon once famously said, be very careful how you read the Bible in church, because it's the only part of the service you can guarantee is inspired. So our text today is from Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13. And this text will now come up on the screen. 
And so please read out loud with me. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So the passage begins with indeed. The word that immediately follows this passage is therefore. Two conjunctions acting as ligaments holding the bones together at the joints. So what precedes our text? Those of you who've been watching via Zoom will, perhaps, remember what came so far. The key thrust of this epistle is the existential need to remain faithful, to practice fidelity in the face of external pressure and internal confusion and doubt. In other words, to be faithful, not fearful. Faithful, not fearful. So our passage begins with that context, and if we don't look at the context, we're simply guessing as to the meaning. Which is one of the reasons why Pastor Colleen is preaching through this book of Hebrews, not merely cherry-picking texts. Now, I teach a little at Westmont College, where I'm, a, I'm an adjunct. You know, much like a chair is an adjunct of a well-equipped office. I greatly love the work of connecting with students, and in particular the students who come on the semester study program in Cairo that Heather and I lead every second year. The students are typically a great bunch, and I'll never forget one young woman who was part of our first cohort in 2012. She was bright and energetic and wanted to follow her parents into their um, work as cross-cultural missionaries. As part of getting to know her, I asked her about her, her devotional life. And she told me that most days she opens the Bible and finds a verse and reads it and tries to let it speak to her. Now, I must admit to being a little crestfallen, and it is possible that my crestfallenness may have leaked out a bit. How could she be so careless with that nuclear material, which is the Bible? Now, I'm well aware that if God could speak through a donkey, which he did in the case of Balaam, then he can guide a Westmont student through random verses taken out of any apparent context. But really, can't we give the Almighty a hand sometimes? Yes, a biblical text without a context is a con. This is true. Let's move on, because specifically, our passage today is Midrash, a term of Jewish hermeneutics in which the writer riffs off a word or a phrase in order to make some practical point. And here he's riffing off the psalm 
that he quoted in the previous chapter of Hebrews, Psalm 95. And this particular verse from that psalm, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God's voice then, in Psalm 95, is the word of God in our verse 12. In other words, this phrase, the word of God, is suggestive of the full power of God to disclose, to reveal, to communicate. Yes, it is referring to the Bible, but it's also much more than that. It's referring also to Jesus, described in the not-yet-written Gospel of John as the Word. It's also the word of God, the voice of God to the church throughout the ages, through the Holy Spirit. Word of creation, revelation, redemption, and presence. This is magnificent. Don't make it small. Indeed, it's also poetry. No literal sword can divide between soul and spirit. No, this is visceral, literally. This is butcher talk, a skilled butcher, working a leg of lamb or a pork fillet, fillet with remarkable speed, dexterity and precision. I'm sure you've seen such butchers. It's also doctor talk, a skilled surgeon using a scalpel to remove a dangerous tumour. Now, I've had a relatively large amount of surgery, especially on my eyes. I'm following five complete detachments of my retinas. Now, the process of surgery itself, eh, I don't recommend it. Indeed, as a way of spending a day and a night, it's greatly overrated. And those crazy gowns they give you, they go on backwards and leave your backside open to the elements. But I would be stone blind now if I had not had those surgeries. The scalpel is scary, but in the hands of a skilled and devoted surgeon, it's also necessary and powerful and life-changing and salvific. And as for the gowns, well, naked we come into this world. But throughout that journey, from the cradle to the grave and beyond, God has promised to be with us and to give us this rest. Because you see, we are not hidden, but seen and known and loved. This is true. Indeed, the text claims that no creature is hidden. It's clear from scripture that the non-human elements of creation are also handmade by our creator and precious to him. In my more self-reflective moments, I'm aware of my own deep desire to be seen and known and loved. I believe it was the anthropologist Ernest Becker who said that the two most powerful experiences of a human life are having a nervous breakdown and falling in love. 
As someone who has experienced both of these ultimate experiences, I can testify that the latter is more fun than the former. But I now believe that in my emerging adult years, it was my fear of being seen and known that caused my breakdown. I was simply not living as the person I truly was. And it was meeting Heather in my early 40s that I first discovered a love that enabled me to let down those defences and allow myself to be seen and known and loved. For this reason, my aspiration with those around me, and especially with my students, is that I may somehow communicate to them that they are seen and known and loved. Of course, I do it miserably inadequately. It remains an aspiration, a direction of travel. But on the odd occasions when a student does perceive this, it's a beautiful thing to see them open like flowers. So does God judge? Now, by a process of elimination, if there were two truths and a lie, and you didn't slip out to send a quick text just now, you will appreciate that if it is true that a text out of context is a con, and that we are seen and known and loved, then it cannot be true that God does not judge, and nor should we. Our two verses today make it pellucidly clear, at least to my reading, that God does judge. And if we're not convinced by these verses, there are hundreds of others like them. So why are we so reluctant to accept this reality? Ours is a culture in which everyone judges, but no one wants to be judged. I don't know if DJM is now an acronym in text land for don't judge me, but if not, I think it could be. I hear students say as a preface to some confession or other, don't judge me, as though this was a spell or an incantation that would magically cause their listeners to turn off their critical apparatus. And yet these same students are piling into social media with opinions about almost any subject you care to mention. And these opinions are usually larded with judgments. Now one can speculate as to this paradox and its causes, but for me, this is all a confusion about what we mean by judgment. And if we mean some small-minded pettiness that evaluates another person's words and deeds against the true north of our own moral perfection, then great, I'm for dropping the judgment. But if we mean by no judgment that there are no moral, should be no moral context or causation in the environment, in the universe, then I am strongly in disagreement. I can't conceive of living in a world where bad is good and good is bad and where these terms are meaningless anyway. I also wonder whether saying God is love and therefore he cannot judge is perhaps 
another dimension of privilege. Today is the final day of Black History Month here in the United States. I think it's therefore a most appropriate day for us to reflect on how our text may apply quite directly, in my view, to recent black history in this country. Imagine with me, if you will, that you are talking with an elderly black lady. Let's say she was born in 1940. She would have spent her formative years with the real fear in her community of lynching. She would have attained to adulthood in 1958, when segregation was legal in much of the country and practiced in all of the country. She would have worried constantly during the 1980s and 90s that her two sons would be caught up in the war on drugs and the mass incarceration that went with it. Even though this mass incarceration was overwhelmingly of young black men, who were in fact no more likely than young white men to take or deal in drugs. During the last decade, she would have briefly hoped that the election of a black president may herald better days. However, she would have found that that of little practical comfort as she pondered the fact that being of median wealth in the black community, her total family assets were a paltry $10,000. Her white contemporaries, as a result of federal loans and mortgage guarantees and unrestricted to buying property without redlining, had a median wealth of $110,000. And now at 80, she has once again, this year, endured the nightmare, a recurrent one in her case, of seeing a series of black men and women who looked like her grandchildren being shot or strangled on national television, while her community experiences hospitalizations and deaths from COVID at levels many times those experienced by the white community. What do you say to this woman? It's a genuine pastoral question. I don't have an answer. I don't have the moral imagination truly to understand her life experience. Anything I could say would be trite. However, if this woman has been well and deeply schooled in the Christian faith, and if in the midst of such grief and loss and disfavour, she deeply believes that God will in fact bring justice, if not in this world, then in the next, it seems to me that this is potentially a significant comfort to her. This is not in any way intended to let me off the hook for my own complicity in systems and practices that work in my interest 
but most definitely not in hers. Nor does it deal with my duty to consider how I may learn to think and act in an anti-racist manner. However, I do believe that God is watching, that we are all seen and known and loved, and that there will be justice in eternity, even when there is great injustice on earth. I believe that brutality and violence and evil on earth will one day be redressed, not necessarily by human judges. Indeed, history suggests that probably not by human judges. However, the judge of all the earth will do right, as Job has it. The judge of all the earth will do right. And Jesus was pretty clear in his apocalyptic speeches that all that is hidden and done in darkness will one day be revealed and brought into the light. And as our text today in Hebrew says, for all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. God does judge. This is consistently clear in scripture. He just doesn't judge like we do. We typically judge to make others smaller in order that we might appear bigger in the hall of mirrors of our distorted lives. But God judges to make everything bigger, to restore it to its full weight of glory. And for the confidence we can have in that judgment, and the grace and mercy that will unfailingly accompany it, for that you will have to tune in or attend next week. Two truths and a lie. And indeed, there were two lies in my story, because no such sage as Father Macarios in fact exists. But it was too delicious a setup to pass by. But truthfully, a text out of context is a con. We are seen and known and loved. And God is the judge of all creation. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.